This morning we light the first Advent candle, the candle of hope. We are filled with hope at the promise of the coming Savior, hope in a God who is faithful to lead us to everlasting life. This morning, our scripture passage comes from Psalm 25, verses 4 through 7. You may follow along in your own Bibles or look to the screens. During our Advent season, the scripture passages will be read in a language other than English to illustrate the whole world's longing for Christ. This morning, we will read the scripture in Lao. Okay, we're going to do it together, so I'm going to teach you the, res the response to God's word. Okay? Kop jai pachau. Kop jai pachau. Okay, when I say all God's people say, you guys say kop jai pachau. Awesome. You guys are really good. I'm just setting you up for Peter. Okay. <laughs> okay. อาจารย์ใหญ่เจ้าหู่ทางเฮาไปดีเจ้าหักเฮาเจ้าจื้อเฮาเฮ็ดแนวดีเจ้าหักเฮาหลายอันนี้แมนลังสือพระเจ้า
And then after much chastisement, I went to 40-something minutes. And then this year, I've been in the 30-something minutes. And today, the sermon itself was only 28 minutes, the first service. But I had so much commentary, came out to 30 minutes total. But today, Joseph is here, and he's the one who clocks me on this. He's the one who rewards me. Joseph, this one's for me. <laughs> From you. <laughs> okay. The word Advent means coming. It's a pretty simple word. Simply means coming. But as I thought about this anew this season, there is depth here and there is a logic here and there's a power here and there's an action here I want us to understand and tap into. Now, why in the world would we need somebody to come? Because we're waiting for them to come. Why? What's the situation? Well, it implies a desperate situation. There is something desperate happening that's beyond your control or your power such that you find yourself waiting. You are in a desperate situation. And so the word Advent is relevant to us and only if you are in a desperate situation and you're waiting in hope for somebody to come. So the word Advent isn't just a seasonal word. It's not just a nice word, but it implies a reality, a hard reality, that you're desperate. Two questions help us understand a key aspect of hope that's related to Advent. Number one, what is the nature of our desperate situation? And then number two, why would someone come? Right? Why would someone come? Okay, let's go there. We'll start with verse 4. Verse 4 says, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. I read this maybe about 30 times this week, and it didn't, the penny didn't drop until much later into my reading, and here it is. Show me your ways implies that you are lost. Teach me your paths means you don't know where to set your foot. You're lost. And so, as promised, I'm going to invite you to engage with me. I want you to repeat after me. I am lost. Y'all didn't have breakfast. Here we go. Again, I am lost. You're lost. I'm lost. We are lost. I once was lost in the woods, as I shared before, for two hours and 45 minutes. The first time that Susie and I hiked Rachel Lake, we had like, I had like a 43-pound pack on. You know, being the gentleman that I am, she had a 44-pound pack on. <laughs> and we just got lost. In fact, this Friday, I was inspired by my sermon on my day off. I said, I'm going to do Rachel Lake again, except it was snow-covered. And so my car didn't even make it to the trailhead. I left it on the side of the road with a sorry, don't ticket me prayer. And I walked, hiked to the trailhead in my snowshoes, and I set off. And uh, I didn't get lost this time because this time I had GPS, which I didn't have last time. But the really embarrassing detail from uh, that two hours and 45 minutes of being lost is that I was in the woods somewhere by myself. Susie was maybe 100 feet away from me. And we were off trail, looking for the trail, for the path. And instead of finding a path, I found a snake. It was a colorful snake, which scared me. It freaked me out. And 
uh, I think that's what nature intended that col those colors to do, and it did. It worked. I, know, I knew nothing about snakes and colors, but that was my reaction. Right? In fact, there's a whole science to the movement of snakes and how that is, evolutionarily speaking, the most, the most scary movement there is is the movement of a snake. Scientists have actually studied this, and you can Google this. So I saw that. I'm saying all that to show how I'm not really that much of a fraidy cat, that we all would do it. But what happened to me was I saw the colors, I saw the movement, I was surprised by it, and I immediately started screaming at the top of my lungs, and I started sprinting. And I was so scared that I sprinted right past Susie. It's true, and there's no redeeming this story. When push came to shove, I abandoned my wife. Nothing could ever change it. It happened. That's who I am. Right? Because I was lost. I was desperate. A second story I want to share with you, just as lost, just as desperate, was about six and a half years ago. I wanted to go to this way uh, sexier church in San Francisco, in the Silicon Valley. People way cooler than all of you guys. And uh, it was just sort of in the bag. You know, I was this big shot, national director of church planting. In fact, I had just come off a worldwide speaking tour. I was really high on myself, and the arrogance was just leaking off of me. And in the last meeting that I had with their leadership team, with their board there, I just was more arrogant than ever, I guess. You know, but that's the nature of arrogance. It's, it's blinding, right? And they called me uh, when I and Susie and my girls with Susie's parents in Chicago, we were at a restaurant celebrating this job call that I was about to get. And I got the call. I stepped away from the table. The tone was not what I was expecting. I stepped outside to take the call. And I stood there in the parking lot, utterly humiliated and surprised and disoriented and feeling lost. How was I going to go back into the restaurant and face my family. I just could not see a way out of that moment and that situation. And to this day, it still really is just, it increases my heart rate when I think about it. And the moral of these stories is, desperate is a powerful state of being. You're flooded, you're triggered, you're having a kind of, Momentary, but extended beyond the moment, a kind of existential crisis. You're unsure of who you are and what's next. You feel sort of the loss of hope. And you say to yourself, I am lost. I'm lost. And I'm sure you have your version of these stories you have been lost before. If you've lived five minutes on planet Earth, you have been lost before. Look at verse 5, though. There's a turn. Verse 5 says, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. What does this imply? Guide me in your truth and teach me. It means that you don't have the truth that you need. You don't know what you should know. So teach me, you say. For you are God, my Savior. Now, un until and unless you are desperate, 
you don't think of yourself as needing salvation. You know, that just seems like a religious Christian word. It's just sort of a word reserved for the melodramatic, for those who are addicts, for those who have shipwrecked their life. You have a caricaturized picture of the kind of person who needs salvation until you come to the moment when you are lost. And then you feel and you know and you say, my God, I need saving. I need some truth. I don't have it. What I need, I don't have. What I need to be, I am not. I don't know, I don't have, and I can't. I have no rights, I have no might. By day or by night, I am stuck. And you come to the conclusion, this is all I can do to hope. There's a beautiful turn here again. Verse 6 to 7, look what it says. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Now, the psalmist here has come to a place where they realize how desperate they are. They are utterly lost. Right? And they know they need help. They know they need salvation. So far, so good. They understand they're out of their resources. They don't have the skill set. They don't have the competence. So they need hope. They need help. They need salvation. But what's the basis of their asking? This is now where the gospel begins to come into play. What's the basis of their ask? Remember, Lord, what? How good I was? How faithful I've been to church? How much tithes and offerings I have given to the church? How morally upright I have been? How consistent my lifestyle? Is that what the psalmist is saying? No. Look at the basis of his appeal. Remember, Lord, your great mercy, your great love. And then he pushes this point even further. He says, for they are from of old, meaning this is not something I'm asking you to sort of uh, call upon now, but you have always been this way. These traits that I've named about you specifically, God, your mercy and your love, you have always been this way from of old. This is consistent with who you are. In fact, he distances himself from this as much as he can, and he continues and says, do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. The basis of my asking has nothing to do with me. It's all about your mercy. This word love is the Hebrew word hesed. It's often translated loving kindness. It's the Hebrew's language's equivalent of the New Testament word charis or grace. It means unmerited favor, unearned, undeserving. Remember, Lord, your grace. You've always been gracious. Don't look at, don't focus on what I have done. All I have is sin. From the time I was young, I've been rebellious. So, he continues, according to your hesed, your love, remember me. For you, Lord, not me, for you, Lord, are good. 
It is all about God and not about me. The only remaining appeal is an appeal to mercy. Why? For their character's sake. Who is good? Am I good? Do I have some ounce or shred of goodness in me on which I base my appeal for help? No, there's nothing good in me. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, you are like this. You are a God who likes to help. You are a God who is Savior, who is salvation. And so in you, I put my hope all day long. And this is the key understanding I want to really convey to you today. Hope, by definition, has nothing to do with you. Because one of the intuitive things that we do is instead of actually praying this prayer, we start bargaining with God. When we bargain, it demonstrates that we don't understand how desperate our situation is. How vacant our character is. How inconsistent we are. We still think, God, you know, if you will help me out this time, I promise then I will. You'll what? You'll come to church more often? How many of you are at church today because of a bargain? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hands. (laughs) By definition, hope is outside of you. You could have committed the most greatest atrocities, filled with shame about who you are and what you have done. You live in anxiety all day because of who you are. And yet that doesn't matter at all because it's irrelevant. It's God who is gracious from old. From of old, he has been this way. Why would he remember you? For you, Lord, are good. The basis of our ask is all about God. And so I have a couple of graphs to demonstrate this. Hope is, hope is the coming of someone that is not you based on their character, not yours. And so we have an inverse chart here. Boom. This is what hope looks like if a mathematician drew it. Hope decreases if you increase. If you say, I have no hope, it means that you're still looking to yourself. If you ever find yourself saying, I feel hopeless, it's because you are still trying to bet on yourself. I'm thinking of three situations right now in my personal life where I feel very little hope. That means I'm still believing the lie that hope is about me. That's why I don't feel the hope. But as soon as I start taking my eyes off of myself and I think, Peter, why would somebody help you? Why would somebody come? Why would there be an advent of hope in your life? And if I'm honest, I say, well, it's not because of me. Well, what about these things I've done? Well, those things are irrelevant. But what about all the ways? Nope, your inconsistencies are irrelevant. 
What about all the ways that I may put myself into this mess? It's my fault. It's my doing. Well, that's irrelevant too. Then on what basis would hope come? Why would there be an advent in my life? Well, because um, God is gracious? Okay. And why is he gracious? Because you deserve grace? Uh, No, because he's always been this way. All right, good. But why has he always been this way? Because that's who he is. Oh, now hope is increasing. As you decrease, hope goes up. This is the logic and truth of hope. I wish somebody would bear witness. Where are my black brothers and sisters? Somebody say amen. My goodness. Scandinavians, you make it so hard. Hope, by definition, is onto you. It's not from you. It's onto you. I want to talk to non-Christians for a second here. There's a podcast called This Amer- The This American Life. Some of you listen to it. Their most popular episode, the only episode they've replayed four times since it's first aired. It's the episode on uh, coincidences. The title of the episode is called No Coincidence, No Story. And Ira Glass himself, the host, says the reason he believes this episode is the most popular is is because people experience the greatest amount of hope through this episode. Because when a coincidence happens, When a coincidence happens, people begin to feel like they're not alone in the universe. Somebody else is coming. Advent is a real thing. Right? They begin to, again, feel like a child. And there's an adult in the room. And it's not them. It's not all up to them. It's not all resting on their shoulders. There is a God in the universe who's saying, I see you. I know you. I love you, and I'm coming for you. And this is a non-Christian's way of experiencing God in the universe. And so I might put the chart this way. As coincidences increase, hope increases. Because when you experience coincidences, something in your brain goes, oh, wait a minute. Is there another force at work? I didn't orchestrate this. How can this be? And you begin to think, oh, it's not all up to me. I don't have to be in control. I was never in control. I will never be in control. Someone else is. So if you're a non-Christian, I wish for you that Santa would bring you a coincidence. If you want to listen to the episode, there's a URL. If you can't read it, just Google, no coincidence, no story. And then let me end uh, with this conclusion. I read a book this week, and I did not expect this book to be so high on my uh, book of, list of books that I like. Uh, the author is named Tower Cowan. He is an uh, economics professor, and I think he went to Harvard, Harvard uh, Graduate School, PhD there. Uh, he writes an amazing blog uh, that I read daily called Marginal Revolution. And this book, 2000, uh, Stubborn Attachments, was voted the uh, best nonfiction book of the year 2018. 
And it's a short little book, and I read it. I don't think he's a Christian, but I'm so tempted to believe that he is because of what he writes in this book. He says something to this effect. Oh, before I get to that, my commentary on this book after reading it is, if a secular economist wrote the Sermon on the Mount, it would be this book. Okay, the whole book is, here is how he believes we can have a better civilization. And he says countries have to focus not on their GDP, but on what he calls their GDP plus. He says all countries do is measure money, right? And we, that's our GDP, basically. He says you have to measure more than that. And what he calls GDP plus is a way of measuring the long-term health and wealth of a nation, long-term health and wealth of a nation. And this is the part I was blown away by. I was surprised by, based on his research and his reading, he says something to the effect of, from what he can tell, the one group that is the best at GDP plus thinking are Christians. He says, because if you want to uh, robustly engage as a nation in GDP plus thinking, you have to think through the eyes of faith. You have to be willing to have hope for your country. You have to be willing to have hope in human nature. And the way you have to do that is so counter to the short-term thinking that economists, secular economists do. He has found that Christians do this the best. Now, I love to to criticize Christians, as you know, but I love it even more when non-Christians praise Christians. So beautiful. He's basically saying, if you want to have hope for our country and for our planet, you have to have faith. And so I close with this word on the screen, hope. Hope is possible. Hope is probable. Hope is certain if you will look beyond yourself. Understand that hope, by definition, is a coming based on the character of God, the plan of God. Hope is coming. Despair not. Advent is here. Would you pray with me? God, I pray with uh, my people here in this church. And for all those listening on the podcast, God, I pray that we would experience hope this season. And it would not be confidence mistaken for hope. It would not be competence mistaken for hope. It would not be wealth and resources mistaken for hope. But the most desperate of us, the most destitute of us, may we experience hope because hope comes from You, you, God, are gracious. You, God, are merciful. And you have always been this way because this is who you are. And so, God, for each person in this room, give us a taste of the hope that only you can bring. May miracles and coincidences and answered prayers and breakthroughs and healing events abound in our church this holiday season. In Jesus' name, amen.